0: Robert Durst would love to know what's happened to his wife. The Manhattan real estate man is willing to pay $100,000 for the answer. His 29-year-old wife, Kathleen, vanished nine days ago from outside their apartment. Reward has brought some telephone calls, but the police won't say if they now have any leads on Mrs. Durst. Kathy McCormick Durst disappeared back in 1982. the body of the Westchester County woman has never been found. From the time she vanished four decades ago, the focus has been on her husband at the time, Robert Durst, a man born into enormous wealth the son of a New York City real estate tycoon who grew up to become one of the most infamous killers this country has ever seen. There are those suspicions about the unsolved disappearance of his first wife, Kathy, the killing and dismemberment of a man in Texas, and the execution-style murder of his longtime friend and confidant in California. The cases brought to national attention with the HBO airing of the documentary, The Jinx, and that famous final scene. Killed them all, of course. Killed them all, of course, Robert Durst muttered to himself. But now the question, did he kill even more people? I'm Dan Bowens, and this is The Tape Room. On this episode, the case of Robert Durst and the many unanswered questions about his crimes spanning more than 40 years.
1: Superior Court of
2: California,
1: County of Los Angeles, the people of the state of California versus Robert Durst. We the jury in the above entitled action find the defendant, Robert Durst, guilty of a crime of first-degree murder of
0: Susan Berman. In October of 2021, a jury in Los Angeles found Robert Durst guilty of murdering his friend and close confidant Susan Berman. Prosecutors argued that Durst shot Berman at point-blank range in her home to prevent her from telling what she knew about the 1982 disappearance of his first wife, Kathy McCormick. We further find the allegation that in the commission of the above offense that Susan Berman was a witness to a crime and was intentionally killed because of the fact within the meaning of penal code section 190.2 subsection A Section 10 to be true. Durst was sentenced to life in prison, and the conviction was expected to lay the groundwork for him to finally stand trial in the case of Kathleen. Not long afterward, a grand jury in Westchester County indicted the multimillionaire for that killing. Current Westchester County District Attorney Mimi Roach detailing what would have been the focus of this case for prosecutors.
1: Um, as I said in my remarks, because of the conviction in Los Angeles and the fact that he was convicted of killing Susan Berman in order to silence her because she was a potential witness against him, we now had finally a legal theory under which we could get statements that he had made to others through Susan Berman into evidence, namely that he had directed her to make that ruse phone call to the medical school shortly after her disappearance to misdirect the investigation, which is obviously a key piece of um, consciousness of guilt um, as well as other types of evidence and That he had in fact admitted to Susan Berman that he had killed Kathleen So those were sort of two very critical pieces that we now had a legal basis to seek admission here in New York.
0: After four decades, prosecutors would finally lay out their case. Her family may finally find justice, a mystery officially solved. But before the trial even started, Robert Durst died as a prisoner in Stockton, California. He was 78 years old, perhaps taking with him the secrets of just what happened to Kathy and in the 40 years from the time Kathy disappeared in between another killing in Texas and that conviction in California, there are questions about just where Robert Durst was, what he was up to, and if he killed anyone else. Our interview now with investigative journalist and author Matt Burke Beck. So focusing a little bit on Kathy Durst, just to get started, can you tell me about her, who she was, and a little bit about kind of how the two of them met, Robert and, uh, and Kathy Durst?
2: So she was a 19-year-old dental student who was living in Manhattan uh, in the early 1970s. She was from a blue-collar family on Long Island. And she meets Robert Durst, whose family owned the building that she was living in, and he apparently was collecting rent. He would collect rents at the time. That was one of his jobs. Uh, so they met, they had one or two, you know, dates and very quickly, she moves to Vermont with him, he had opened up a health food store.
0: And their relationship sort of unfolds quickly. She's a medical student. She's young. I mean, she's she's pretty young at this point, And he's kind of like this, this son of a real estate giant, a real estate Titan. And so they're kind of coming from opposite sides of the world. It
2: wasn't a match that you'd think um, would actually work. But You know, at that time, apparently it did, at least according to Kathy's family, they were deeply in love uh, through the early part of the 1970s. And, you know, she was enjoying the life of a Durst. You know, his family owned, you know, I mean, half of Manhattan in terms of real estate. They were very, very wealthy and very powerful. Um, And, you know, they got along and everything changed though in the mid 1970s when she got pregnant. He did not want children. He had told her he didn't want children. Uh, and he forced her to have an abortion. And that radically changed their relationship going forward. And at some point there in
0: Westchester County, and and that's the relationship has sort of deteriorated a, a bit by that point.
2: He starts holding back uh, inter- money. He, he won't give her even an allowance. So she needs to go out and, and she decides she needs to make her own money. She needs to have her own career. Um, So she goes from dental school to medical school um, and the relationship just gets really bad. There was just a lot of arguing. He becomes really bizarre. Friends could hear him growling on the phone, things like that. She's, her friends are telling her to divorce him and she's going to, and only she wants a settlement. He's resisting. He doesn't want to give her a settlement. And finally in uh, January, 1982, you know, she returns from a party uh, where she had some wine and some drugs and confronts him about the divorce and about the settlement. And she's vanishes. She's gone. Her friends immediately believe that he killed her. And they tell that to the police. So he had gone to the to like five days, four or five days after she vanishes. He, he finally goes to the police station in New York and talks to a detective and reports are missing. Friends are saying he killed her. Police don't have any evidence of it. You know, this could be anything, you know, from a wife that was involved with someone who left to someone who just didn't want to be in a relationship anymore and left. Uh, But as the weeks go by, you know, Durst stops talking. He had talked to the police initially. The case ultimately dies. They have no clues until seven, eight months later when phone records come in. And they realized the detective on the case, Detective Strzok realizes that Durst lied to him about his whereabouts the Tuesday after she disappeared. She disappeared on Sunday, where he said he was in Connecticut and he was actually in Southern New Jersey, near the Pine Barrens. And that's when Strzok goes to the district attorney's office and says, I wanna charge him with murder. At that time, they did not charge, they did not uh, file murder charges without finding a body. That was something that wasn't done till the late nineteen eighties. Um, so they say no, and they also say, look, the family's that powerful. So if he's acquitted, if we do charge him and he's acquitted at trial, you'll never get this chance again.
0: And when you say the Pine Barrens, what is that?
2: So the Pine Barrens is this uh, kind of well known within legal and organized crime circle circles as a as a mafia graveyard. It's this it's this expanse of just sand and trees that's off the, it's in Southern New Jersey, near, near a town called Ship Bottom. It's where the mob would bury its victims, other murder victims would end up there. Um, and it's where uh, everyone believes, at least now following the Susan Berman trial. All this is playing out
0: in the New York media.
2: Yeah, it's a big story. It's front page news because of who the Dursts are. Seymour Durst, who led the family, you know, he was on the cover of a magazine as one of the five most powerful men in New York, along with other real estate barons like Helmsley and, and even Donald Trump at the time. So, you know, you, you really couldn't get any more powerful than Seymour than Durst, so it did. But then like everything else, you know, with nothing going on, the media loses interest and the case sort of just goes away until the detective in Westchester County with the New York State Police, Police Joe Sarah, he takes an interest in the case in 1999 and he reopens it.
0: And when he reopens it in 1999, what happens? What's he looking at? What sort of spurs him to reopen it?
2: He gets a tip from a guy that he knows who had been arrested, he had arrested him before. And he says he knows what happened to a woman named Kathy Durst. The Sarah had never heard the name before. He Starts poking around, the New York state police file is pretty thin. He gets the New York city police file and it's much thicker. And he then goes to the district attorney at the time, Janine Pirro, and says, hey, I want to look into this. And she says, fine. He does. He spends a year digging into it. Their story just didn't line up. He had claimed that he had put her on a train that Sunday night back to Manhattan um, from their home in Westchester County. And she was never seen again. This is when I got involved. I was writing for People Magazine at the time. I do a story. That story comes out in early December. And the one person I tried to find... I was told to go talk to if I could find her, it was Susan Berman because I was told that she was she was really close to Bob and she was, and that she might have some info. I um, mean, she dies two weeks later, and that's when that just sent this story to a whole different level. It's now goes from being a local story to being a, a national story.
0: And at this point as well, I mean, Robert Durst is, he's hes not still living in Westchester County. I mean, he sort of has clearly moved on with his life and has moved on pretty quickly.
2: You know, we all thought that this was just a, a story, kind of, a, let's say a typical story of, you know, husband kills wife, gets away with it for many years, justice circles around and he's arrested, he's arrested and goes to prison. Uh, it turns out that Durst was living this bizarre life. He was stealing identities. He was um, living in different parts of the country amongst the homeless and transients. Uh, He um, was dressing as a woman, and he ended up in Galveston after work, or he had actually been in Galveston already in, in Texas, but that's where he fled to after word of this new investigation leaks. And is down there in Galveston, where he then is charged with murdering a drifter down here named Morris Black. But I was told whoever dismembered Morris Black knew what he was doing. He knew how to cut around the arms and the legs and whatnot. And that just, for me, that just raised so many, I mean, different alarm bells in my head, like, all right, what's really going on here?
0: And there's no debate that he did kill this individual. And at the trial, though, he is not found guilty of that based on a self defense claim.
2: It was just a, it was a bizarre trial. I covered it. Um he had hired the best lawyers in 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 Texas, Dick DeGarren and company and the prosecution was just not up to the task of going against those pro- the the defense team and the jury bought this really bizarre defense and they acquitted him. Yeah, he did kill him. He did, he did kill Morris Black. He was living in the same house with him. He claimed it was self-defense. Him and Black somehow had some kind of relationship that went back some years. And this was a case of just Durst covering tracks, which included the murder some eight, nine months before Susan Berman.
0: Susan Berman is another body that is left in the wake of Robert Durst. Obviously, no one has found Kathy Durst's body. But... Berman is a major player in this because she has a direct to the first mysterious case.
2: Yeah, she was she was the key. Like I said earlier, she was the key to this story. Her murder was, like I said, what set this case off into a whole other level. When I spoke to the prosecutor in uh, Los Angeles, John Lewin, I first spoke to him in 2016, You know, I had reported on other missing women that Durst may be associated with and he said to me, Matt, I'm gonna focus just on proving that he killed Kathy. I mean, the case was about Susan Berman and proving that he killed her, but he was gonna bring in the Morris black murder. He was gonna bring in the Kathy Durst disappearance. He was gonna use that um, as part of the prosecution uh, of, of Durst regarding the murder of Susan, Susan Berman. And he did that. And it was because he did do that he connected the dots with that, he, that the um, Worcester County DA is can now file murder charges against her. is here in New York after, I mean, how many years is this now? Almost 40 years.
0: And in the Berman trial, he's accused and was found guilty of killing her because she may have known some information about his first wife. What was the information that she supposedly knew?
2: She knew that he had killed her, that he had killed Kathy and... She had actually acted as his spokesperson in the weeks after her disappearance. She would speak to the media for him. So everyone had believed from very beginning, from even when I had gotten involved in this back in 2000, that she was the key to the case, that she knew everything. I never thought that she would ever snitch on him or tell anyone that she was involved. And And that's what he was was
0: afraid of at that point.
2: He had claimed that she had talked to or was going to talk to the Los Angeles Police at the time. That was his. That was his defense. In yeah, that defense, but that was his story. She. She had first. She had never spoken to the police. Second, she had never. She hadn't been approached by the police prior to her death. It wasn't until two weeks later, when the state police trooper I mentioned, Joe Becerra, reached finally reached out in early January of 2001 to interview her, that he found out that she was dead. So his story just didn't hold any water. It was about him um, eliminating people that that knew what he had done and what he was up to.
0: And you've written a sort of very in-depth book about this. And part of what you uncovered is also some serious questions about his own mental health and raising the possibility that there may be other women, other victims out there.
2: He was diagnosed at the age of 10 with having severe mental issues. He had seen his mother die when he, she committed suicide when he was only seven years old. And his father sent him to a psychologist when he was 10. And after two visits, the, they ended the treatment, they ended the session saying he's 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 too angry and he's too resistant. And unless he gets help though, you know, they, they use words like personality decomposition and schizophrenia. As far as I know, he was never treated after that. And then I had uncovered all this bizarre behavior throughout the 80s and 90s, stealing identities, cross-dressing as a woman, living in different parts of the country. And then I reported in 2003 to women who disappeared in the 1990s when he was living in California. And police believed that he was involved in their disappearance. One of them in particular, Karen Mitchell, you know, I had a really good source close to the defense team and back then. And... She said, the source said that when uh, I reported that about Karen Mitchell, he was very concerned. In 2015, after the airing of the HBO documentary, The Jinx, the FBI, James Comey at the time who had the head of the FBI, he had announced that the FBI was going to look cr- uh, across the country in all their bureaus to see, A, if there's lived in their area, B, if he could possibly be associated with any missing people in those jurisdictions. It was really an announcement made at the time because there was so much press about the case, but it kind of went away. They had other priorities. Andrew Jurecki, who directed The the Jinx, did not, You know, we've been talking over the years, he did not necessarily believe he was a serial killer. He had called me up two days after the last episode of The Jinx, and he said, Matt, you're right, he's a serial killer.
0: You are as close to this story, this 40-year saga, As anyone who's followed this story, as you think about it, as you piece together who he is, who Kathy Durst was, who these other people are, what are your thoughts as you look at the whole thing and you zoom out?
2: This is a case that is much bigger than even we know now.
0: That was author and investigative journalist Matt Birkbeck. His book, A Deadly Secret, The Bizarre and Chilling Story of Robert Durst is available everywhere. It was also turned into a lifetime movie. There are no easy answers here, and there are still too many secrets and unanswered questions. But we do know there is pain, the anguish and emotion that comes with losing a loved one. The family of Kathy McCormick has always insisted the Durst family used its influence to disrupt the investigation in its early stages. Durst's brother, Douglas, who testified against his own brother at the trial in California, denied he or anyone in the family ever aided in any cover-up instead saying about Robert Durst, quote, he'd like to murder me. The Tape Room is part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dan Bowens. Our executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Ahmad Asgar. Byron Harmon is vice president of Fox 5 News, and Lou Leone is senior vice president and general manager. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Tape Room.